This is the last day of both this retreat and this uh, Vasa. And tomorrow is the Pavarana day, full moon of October. And so this uh, tradition handed down through 2,547, 48 years. Uh, so this is what tradition, the value of tradition is it's a vehicle or something, a convention, a form that that holds the teaching and the expedient means to be carried on from one generation to another. So they have the term Bajeka Buddha, which is like a enlightened being, but sits, you know, cannot teach or convey it to anyone else. So if Bajeka Buddhas themselves are liberated, but there's no tradition aligned with them. Whereas awakening is a, is a natural process, uh, whether it's, uh, you call it Buddhist, put it in any kind of uh, religious terms, you know, is, uh, is not, doesn't depend on the terminologies or the convention. But the convention itself is a, is a expedient means or skillful means. To hold the, the the teaching, for example, the monastic sangha uh, has managed to survive such a long time. Uh, not many conventions uh, survive the, the 2,500 years, and are still operative. They're not kind of moribund practices that you just keep performing out of duty but have no purpose or meaning in the present situation. Where the Buddhist monastic form seems to even be more kind of kind of uh, useful at a time, present time, modern Europe, European situation. But like any conventions, they're, they're expediences, expediencies. They're not 
ends in themselves. And this is like the simile of the key to the prison cell. You don't, if you just uh, hold on to the key but don't use it, you never get out. Or if you put it on your shrine and bow to it every day, it probably will uh, enhance your life in prison, give you some moments, beautiful, kind of more positive moments in the prison, but you don't get out of it. So to me, the monastic convention, the Pali, Buddhism, Theravada, Thai forest tradition, these are to be used. You know, the tools that we, like, that's how I see it in the monastic life, the traditional form, then you're kind of empowered or given the the right to use the Dhamma Vinaya and, and it's, uh, as it's been passed down. So, you know, it's a Sangha agreement, like uh, Samanera, Tamaraka, and Gina Wangsa will take Upasampada on the 11th of December, then, and this is what this really amounts to. They're asking to, to uh, take the, this Upasampada, bhikkhu ordination, and then the bhikkhus, uh, make this announcement, and you know it's a, it's done in a ceremonial form, but it's all it's not nothing magical or or uh, fantastic about it, or you know even mystical. It's all about do you have any communicable communicable diseases? Are you you have responsibilities in the world that you have to take care of, and so forth, and then. The, and if the, none of these obstructions are present, then the, the, the Sangha has to agree. <clears throat> and so in that agreement, then it's like giving you the, the, the rights to use the tradition in, in its monastic form, its Vinaya practices and so forth. So it's not like kind of a, if, if it's regarded as superstition, then it's uh, then it becomes something else. Then we're just merely kind of saying the words and believing that actually chanting in Pali and going through ordination procedures and all these, uh, you know, some kind of magical empowerment rather than than uh, giving you the the right, the agreement, and the encouragement. So giving the, the right to use the tradition, then it's up to you what you do with it. So it's not a matter of, you know, of forcing it or or uh, compelling or intimidating or because when you're dealing with morality and strictness and discipline, these kind of uh, conventions, uh, there's always a danger of being attached to it, of becoming, uh, feeling you're better. There's a sense of superiority about 
about keeping moral precepts or being very strict and disciplined somehow. You've, it's easy to assume that one is better. The more strict you are, the better you are. The more committed you are. So, and if you belong to a strict sect or group, then it's easy to get into this kind of cultish attitude. We're really, we're really doing the practice. We're the bearers of the tradition. We are the commandos of the Sangha. And there's this kind of supercilious tendency, you know, can be seen as a witness. Is this a peaceful state to to feel better than somebody else? Or to have to defend and promote your tradition and and um, justify it or convert people to it? Because these are quite human tendencies. Not, none of us are you know, innocent, totally innocent of these uh, these tendencies. Because when you when you when you grab in, when you're holding on to refinement and beauty and truth and ideals, these are in the world of conventional reality are superior to say the coarser elements. So, you know, to be upper class, to be refined, cultured, educated, have lots of money, have social position, have a title, uh, these, uh, you know, these, on, in the worldly life, these are what we, you know, people long for, to be looked up to, respected, admired. And then to, and the fear of being considered vulgar, cheap, common, unworthy, inferior. And then we have the egalitarian ideals of, you know, the kind of grand gesture of everybody's exactly the same, which is another ideal, isn't it? We can, we if we're egalitarians, we can feel we're better than, than social snobs. So people that are holding to positions in the society, you know, the the ones that look down on everybody, we, as an egalitarian, I can feel I'm much more, I'm a, I'm more superior, because I'm egalitarian. So on the, how do you win on that level? You know, can you ever win that game? Because even if you attach to the grand gestures and the, the the, the egalitarian principles. It's still grasping the key, isn't it? Your, your egalitarianism, where, where, where are we all equal? Where is there equality, <clears throat> oneness in all humanity, in the universe itself? And it's certainly not in the physical form, and we're all very different. 
and in abilities, capabilities, uh, conditioning, all the, the whole lot, all the conventional world, the conditioned realm. It, it's all about differences. It's all about good, better, best, bad, worse, worse. About dark and light, male and female, high and low, good and bad. superior and inferior, and all the same, all equal. So this is is pointing to the conventional reality is not to be despised, you know. It's, we and we live with conventions. We we live in societies. We we're living in this country in in England. It's like this. This country's like this. It's culture. It's its ideals. It's uh, habits, uh, principles, and all this are to be recognized, respected. So it's not, you know, kind of uh, an anarchical approach of of just putting down the conventional realities or the or the worldly conditions, because that's another sense of you know, that's that's still on the level of samsara. Annihilation is not the answer. Conversion or making everybody wear the same uh, outfit think the same thoughts, condition them, brainwash them, make them all uh, say the same things, think the same thoughts, wear the same clothes. This is what uh, communism tried to do, isn't it? Try to make everybody equal by forcing principles of equality onto everybody. It doesn't work that way. No, it's a, it's a, it ends up as tyranny. Forcing principles, no matter how good those principles might be, onto somebody else is an act of tyranny. And if somebody forces their view upon you, it might be a very good view, but the action itself is tyrannical. So then you have this law of karma. You know, if you want a good result, you you have to have a good means. The means and the end are really the same thing. So take that on just on the conventional uh, conventions, the the means and the end. And where all where we're all one and equal is in satipanya. Because that's that's a oneness, that's not personal, it's not racial. It isn't uh it isn't 
It is not uh, annihilating. It's not, there's nothing tyrannical about it. You can't force it onto anybody. You can't force it on yourself. So uh, it's to be realized individually. So it's not like a mass conversion or, or, you know, making everybody become Buddhists or monks or nuns or things like this. It's, that would be tyrannical. But it's an uh, invitation. Come and see. Ehi pasiko. Dhamma. So in the stillness, sound of silence, awareness, there's no self that can that can I can compare as being superior or inferior or even equal. Like space in this, the space around us is is uh, you know it's just space, isn't it? Space around you, your body, and the space around mine. It's space. I can't say this is mine. I'm this. I own this space. I can say that, you know, I can, I can say, get out of my space, this is my space, but that's, I'm projecting that onto this, because space is, isn't a property that one can own. But we're all in the space, you know, the, the physical bodies, different characters, tendencies, <clears throat> abilities, and so forth. Space doesn't reject any, any of it. So the um, stillness that you, beget, that you awaken to through observation, recognizing, it's just this. Uh, then there's not two anymore. So there's nothing to be superior, inferior, whatever. Even equality kind of falls apart. It doesn't, you can say, well, it doesn't make sense in that context anymore. It's another word. And then it's bhajatang, meaning to be realized. Each one of us, we can't, you know, as much as I'm trying to encourage and and explain, you know, it's up in whether you realize this, know this reality. I can't make you do that, no matter how skillful I might be able to describe or point. It's, it's up the, that's all I can do. That's the best anyone can do for you. But the, uh, but whether you recognize, realize, that's, even the Lord Buddha couldn't force that onto his disciples. That's called 
budget tang way ti da po vinui to be realized individually. Now then the questions arise, do you need a tradition or not? And then the, the thinking mind starts operating again. Because there's various views and opinions. Traditions are not necessary or, You know, the religions, we can put down religions or traditions or conventions, rules and so forth, so that it, you know, there's a, <clears throat> then if you've committed yourself to a tradition as long as I have, then of course it, uh, you know, you can see, you can see people getting very uptight when they say you don't need even to keep sila, and uh, you don't uh, you don't need traditions or conventions, and so that what does that do to the mind? You know what? How does that when somebody offers that kind of reflection? Well, if one is very attached to a, to a tradition, then you get very defensive. You you say. Uh, you have to have the eightfold path and the three refuges. And if you don't, then you can't do it. It says so in the scriptures. And so this is like defending, holding on to scriptural, uh, how you interpret scriptures. Watching that, how one feels threatened when, when uh, your tradition or the, what you've invested so many years in is is uh, seems to be uh, challenged or despised or put down or dismissed. So then you can see how what attachment to a tradition is, you know how when you when you feel this this sense of being threatened or anger or become defensive, feel you have to defend it by putting down the person that's saying these things. So you have in, you know, you go through these boring discussions about whether so-and-so is an enlightened master or not because, uh, you know, he drank quart of whiskey every day. Could an enlightened master drink a quart of whiskey every day? And then the kind of moralistic ones say, no, of course not. Disgusting. That's the gross behavior. You can't even have one drop of, if, there, if your cough syrup has even 1% 0.1% 
0.1% alcohol and you drink it, you've broken the rules. And if you broke the rules, you can't be enlightened. And this is getting into the very thing I most dislike about religions. There's a, this kind of righteousness and moralistic tendencies. So this is, I find this, you know, when it gets in, then it becomes more like zealots and fanatics. It easily gets itself into, you know, protecting the purity of the faith by killing off all the people that don't go along with it, into jihads and crusades and things like that. Separations, condemnations, witch hunts, burnings, hangings, genocide. That kind of strength, the power of righteous feeling I'm right and anyone that doesn't agree with me is wrong. And then there's a justification to get rid of them. There's a logic there. It's logical. You know, if, if uh, if um, ants start creeping into the sala like they do in Thailand, you know, if, if for a lay person, you know, just get out the insecticide and spray them. Get it, get rid of them. And that seems the most reasonable thing to be doing. You know, you're sitting on the floor with ants crawling all over you. You just kill them off. So logic is like that, you know, it has a function, but, but, as a, but it's still on the conventional level. So then, the, um, noticing this, when, in, when somebody says, this uh, teacher is supposed to be fully enlightened master, drank a, a quart of whiskey a day and died of cirrhosis of the liver, he couldn't be in line. He's, he's worse than any most of. The, he's worse than anybody I know on this planet. Nobody I know could do that. I couldn't drink a quart of whiskey a day. That's, I think that's an ascetic practice. Only enlightened person could drink a quart of whiskey. <laughs> I'd die. But we seem to, one can feel, well that, that means you just throw out the moral precepts and you can do anything you feel like and, uh, and then we get into, you know, if you, if you don't have that then everything will fall apart and there's no boundaries, no discipline, no control, everything goes crazy. <clears throat> and then you watch that reaction. If, you know, letting go, then everything goes, losing control, everything goes crazy.
Oh, and this is where this awareness, isn't it, is observing what's actually happening in your, in your, um, in your mind, the way it moves, what threatens, what do you depend on for security? And then and you hear about others and things like that. Is you know, I I don't know. I don't have to know. It's not up to me to know whether that person was enlightened or not, or where he was at, or if he was a a demon in disguise or whatever. I can be aware of of how what I hear and. And what people tell me, how that affects me. Now this is direct knowing. And knowing the effect of, you know, somebody acts like drinking a quart of whiskey a day to me is, it, I don't find inspiring. You know, it isn't somebody I'd particularly feel attracted to. <laughs> On the hearsay that he can drink a quart of whiskey a day. So, I don't see that. It's not, on a conventional level, not doesn't inspire me or make me want to seek that person out. But that's all, you know. The thing is, in terms of, you know, defining his attainment, this gets into conceit again, isn't it? I'm so conceited that I know who, that who can attain and who can't. So, this, uh, observing this in yourself, how conditioned one is, like I was brought up in a very strict, uh, kind of, uh, Christian background. So morality was very absolute in, in how it was presented to me, uh, in childhood was was moral absolutes and good and evil were 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 absolute good is absolute and then say what about evil and they say well it's it's not it's not quite as absolute as the other <laughs> so then you, so then what does that do you know an absolute is kind of you know if it's absolute that means that's the way it is, you know, it's total. But then evil is not, it's about maybe three quarters absolute. <laughs> and you're just playing games with concepts, aren't you? And trying to, to figure things out with words. But what I know, like hear, hearing about this teacher who drank a quart of whiskey, I know, you know, attainment, I, I can recognize that I'm, I'm hearing, I listen, I have a, a opinion conform, a reaction, but the knowing is that these are all conditioned reactions. 
they arise and cease. And it's it's just sanya sankara going on. You know, it isn't the the reputation of somebody is just that. It's sanya, isn't it? You hear about somebody else. Never even met this person or seen him or near him or anything. You just hear about. And what is hearing about, like gossip and hearsay and that, is in the, in the reality of this moment, is that it's, uh, it's sanyakanda. This you can know, you know, and this, you don't even have to have the words, but you can be aware that, that when you hear about somebody else, that that experience is, you know, you can't sustain it or keep it. You remember, you remember when somebody says this, this name, then you know, oh, he's the one that drinks a quart of whiskey a day. And, but all that is what it, what is it in the reality of this moment? It is sankara. It is, uh, anicca dukkha anatta. This you can know. This is knowing. Direct knowing, not, not, uh, knowing about, having opinions, views. So actually when you trust this, you know, you develop this, it, it makes life so much more simple. You know, you can actually, you see, you know, realize all your, how, you know, your weak points. It's a way of noticing. It's not saying you shouldn't be attached to the tradition and coming from from a high place. You should never be attached to the vinay or the conventions. Uh, you shouldn't be attached. Uh, attachment as always leads to suffering and, and kind of getting on the preaching bit, you know, of, uh, speaking down to you and telling you that what you should and shouldn't do. But in well, during this... Uh, Retreat, pointing to attachment, not telling you you shouldn't be attached, but to know what it is. So that's why I can paticca samupada dependent on issues. It's a investigation of attachment. So you know it. It's not, not, uh, it's not, you know, suggesting you shouldn't be attached. But what is attachment as experience now? What is the suffering now? If I'm suffering right now, what is the attachment? Because if I, you know, I just assume I'm, suffering is caused through attachment and ig- ignorance and attachment. Now take that on principle in the, as a suggestion. And I find I'm feeling something or thinking something or something's happening that I'm unpleasant physical or emotional experience and, and I'm suffering. You know, you can see the suffering is here. So then, then the, and well, I'm suffering because the body aches. I'm suffering because, uh, this person, uh, uh, insulted me, or I'm suffering because, um, 
the restrictions of monastic life. I'm suffering because uh, of the uh, the food, or the, blaming it always on external things, or as we uh, investigate this experience, we see that I can blame my suffering on something outside. Or what is when I'm more interested in suffering is a result of attachment. What does that really mean in the in this moment? And then I can think I'm suffering because I'm attached to. I'm too proud, or I'm too uh, too much fear, anxiety. I shouldn't I shouldn't have these emotions. And then you get into, you know, instead of blaming it on an external, then you're blaming it on yourself. At least you're getting a little closer on that level. <laughs> I think that, like, here in, in England, uh, one thing I liked about English uh, people was that they they easily blame themselves. The t- tendency, cultural tendency towards self-disparagement. <clears throat> And it's kind of modesty, understatement, the way the culture kind of works, and both the way they speak English and so forth. But, but at least it's, um, you know, you're getting closer. And if your whole experience of life is everything that's wrong is because of somebody else, uh, the weather or the government or the Americans or the wife, husband, Blame it on mother and father. <clears throat> so at least, you know, if you're self-disparaging and, and, uh, that, that, but that's not, that's not liberating. But at least, you know, it isn't so outward. It's not expecting the world to, to, uh, give you everything, make you feel secure and fulfill all your desires. But as you go further, you kind of trust the awareness, recognizing awareness and cultivating this. And then then you can, then you, vipaka kama, you know, the, the habit tendencies that you've developed, the because we are creatures of habit. So then the but then I have perspective on that now. So where I feel uh, you know some kind of suffering, dis-ease. Um, resentments. Um, I feel I have to defend. I feel defensive. Or obsessed about something. Then these are like what I call weak points, you know, that, that are to be investigated. Not as weak points as some kind of criticism that, that there's something wrong with me for having weak points, because that's, that's 
that's conceit. You know, you're trying to pretend that you don't have any is another, is you're hopeless then. There's no hope for you whatsoever if you attach to that view. But I always see the weak points as opportunity where I feel most threatened or most un- dis- unable or uneasy or defensive, frightened, dreading. Then uh, then uh, this uh, seeing it, change it from just avoiding, uh, running away from, blaming, controlling everything, seeing it as opportunity. Because by then that's the dukkha of the first noble truth. There is this dukkha. So even feeling that I'm superior to somebody else, when the, those those kind of conditions arise, I feel that I'm better than somebody else. When I really look at that, it's not a peaceful uh, condition. It does not. To be better is not. It's not a. It's not. Is not moving towards peace or liberation. <clears throat> not to mention feeling inferior or not as good as. And then the equal, and I, I, I am being American, um, culturally an egalitarian. So I like these grand ideals. You know, it's part of a cultural mindset. Everybody's equal. So then, uh, you know, that's, but then attachment to everybody's equal is, you can see that it's not the way things really are. It's a nice idea. I kind of like it. It's inspiring. But the realities of life, I mean, there's so, everything seems very unequal. Where's the equality? So in the sense of morality, you know, we encourage this, these conventions, even for worldly happiness, there's greed ways of behaving, five precepts, uh, as a kind of basis for learning to live together in, in respecting each other's spaces or things, or, you know, not intentionally harming or abusing or, or, uh, lying or taking advantage, exploiting a powerful position uh, or whatever, or getting involved with with uh, drugs and drink that easily be, create addictions, that create more problems for one's life. So these are, these are kind of encouragements uh, just on the worldly level too. Encouraging uh, uh, sila, even if you're not interested in in uh, liberation from suffering or in enlightenment, 
then you want uh, at least a little more happiness in uh, in the world than the dana sila is the way to do it generosity and and morality so that is you know that's praiseworthy on the worldly level you know somebody that that uh tries to take it's like taking responsibility for your life for what you do how you live in the world where it's easy in the here in in, in western europe isn't it over the past just observing how you know the societies uh tend to um you know these kind of cradle to grave uh socialistic tendencies welfare states and that oftentimes create the illusion that you have to take care of me the state should answer all my needs and if they don't they're to blame and so you you easily become kind of a feeling of victim or you're endlessly complaining because you don't really get what you think you deserve or or somebody else gets more than you do or So, the, like, dana uh, as a as a for in worldly life is is brings a lot of joy into one's life to be generous, like meanness and stinginess and that. When you look at those states, you know, and I look at stinginess and meanness of heart in myself. It's not. I don't want to be like that. I can certainly feel that way sometimes. But uh, it's not a state of mind I want to cultivate or perpetuate either. So for worldly happiness and and harmony in the society, dana sila is the is you know the Buddhist terms generosity and morality bring worldly happiness and success. Self-respect. You know, before you, if you're not interested in anatta, at least, uh, you know, create a self you can respect. <laughs> so if you want to be a happy person, uh, that, you know, at least this is how I see it, the person that I can respect is generous and Responsible for how, how they live, what they, how they live in the society. I, f- I find that, you know, I respect people that, that live like that. That I find inspiring. Just on the worldly plane. And so if I, you know, if I'm just interested in worldly happiness and relationships and getting along and living a nice life in the world and Donasila are very good suggestions and ways of achieving that. And then Pawana is uh, of course the this uh, is the, what they refer to as meditation. 
And so this is like investigating, looking into, uh, using, uh, like in Buddhist terms, uh, the conventions, Four Noble Truths, Paticca Samuppada, the Four Stages, the Ten Fetters, monastic life, the Four Requisites, the, the way of living a monastic life for contentment. Now, now, in being summoned, the idea is to be content. It's not something, you know, one can command anybody to be. It, it's up to you, you know, how content you're willing to be. And contentment means that you're, you're not demanding a lot or expecting a lot. You're not saying, I need this and I have to have that and, and uh, you owe me this and and on and on where they say in a worldly life but in monastic life it's it's moving more towards gratitude contentment attitudes of, that are part of being alms mendicants being grateful for generosity extended to us being content with what is offered with what we have now those are foundations for pawana because you can't get very far if you if you're going to be a discontented monk or nun, always complaining, wanting something, criticizing. feeling you know that you're not appreciated or that your position is inferior to somebody else's or on and on like this uh, this is discontentment. So, I mean, these are, this is very human too, but discontentment, you know, how do we relate to that? So, not, rather than trying to make yourself, convince yourself you're content with everything, if you're discontented, this is opportunity, this is a challenge. I, I don't feel, I feel very discontented, I don't think it's fair, I feel it should be, and... Uh, And so then you <clears throat> listen to your discontentment. Then you, and if you really listen, that which is aware of discontentment, is the refuge. So you separate. Awareness is never discontent, but it's aware of this. It's a, it knows discontentment is like this. And then in the world, the life of a samana, a monk or a nun, then the life is one of, like, you know, not not of seeking positions and and equality and fairness and demanding all these ideals, but of being grateful for the alms food for the opportunity to practice contentment with the robes, the food, the shelter, the medical allowances. So then this is this is, means that if there's contentment and gratitude, then one can practice. The pawana really uh, emanates from that. And some people approach meditation always from, 
you know, I want to attain enlightenment rather than from the more humble place of of living in a way that one is content, grateful rather than demanding or willful, using willful abilities to concentrate the mind and trying to achieve and attain. I realize in the with Ajahn Chah, you know, the, his emphasis was, you know, when people ask, ask, did Ajahn Chah teach jhanas and all this? I don't remember him ever teaching jhanas or things like that. He was, he was always pointing at, you know, the requisites, uh, reflecting on the life, monastic routine, you know, the, they kind of being content with what is offered and settling down, not not always striving and trying to to get something and achieve and attain. So the emphasis was much more motivated toward toward not really you know doing things to attain. All my attempts at fasting in the early, in the first year. You know, I'd do all these fasts. <clears throat> because I wanted something to do, you know. Uh, I wanted to prove myself. And somehow just being there and getting up in the morning, the morning puja, uh, getting ready for the alms round, going out on Bindabhat, putting on the robes. All this I didn't, at first, didn't appreciate very much. I just saw it as something you had to do. And uh, where I could, you know, I wanted to get through all that so I could get back to my kuti and practice samadhi. So the whole thrust of my first year was to kind of put up with that in order to have those, that free time for samadhi practice. That's That's what I liked. But then as uh, living there, then you begin to, and the samanasanya reflections, you become aware of, of these, this, this kind of, of, kind of driven obsessiveness and, and the kind of ease, the, the sense of being at ease with himself, the joyfulness of somebody like Lumpur Cha. He didn't seem, you know, life just, he seemed quite happy, content, taking it as it comes. So the story about the lay person saying, there's somebody here to see you at waiting at the cell. And I start rushing out my kuti, hurrying along the path. And the layman says, you don't walk like Ajahn Chah. And I said, what do you mean by that? And, and he says, Ajahn Chah only takes one step at a time. <laughs> it was a brilliant reflection. I, I've always remembered that because I saw, you know, <clears throat> it's like, you know, Pavlovian dog or this, you know, somebody at the sala and already I put on my robe, rushed down the steps of my kuti, aim for the sala. 
So I'm aiming for the cellar. My mind's already there. Bodies, I'm dragging it behind me. I saw kind of this nimitta myself, you know. My mind's already in the cellar, trying to be there. And this body, which can't get there as fast as the mind, is being kind of propelled by the mind. So I'm kind of racing. And there's, there's a village man, too. This village farmer that you don't walk like Arjun Shah. These are the experience, you know, like I remember that one. I can still, I remember exactly where the kuti is. It's still there. And what I can't quite remember the labors. <laughs> I remember it was a, one of the village men that usually spent a lot of time in the monastery. So, uh, but there was an insight, you know, that, that, that was powerful insight for me. So in the, over the years, then, uh, you know, they're learning to cultivate this way. And, and you know, I've been through the whole gamut of, you know, of love, hate, and with the, with the convention, with monasticism. You know, so had, Sometimes love it and just absolutely find it wonderful and I've been through periods of just weary, fed up monks and nuns just, yeah, can't stand them anymore. And uh, all these rules and the monasteries, been through the, the disillusionment phase. And when you're in those things, then you tend to seek, you know, more scintillating friendships outside. Because lay people, they don't have the, you know, they, they look much more attractive. <clears throat> they aren't, they don't say the party lines are the same old boring things that monks and nuns do and keep asking about whether the jhanas, you have to get the jhanas and how do you get them and what is mindfulness. <laughs> So how you enjoy lay people and just shooting the breeze, chewing the fat, being ordinary, not being intensely Buddhist and strict and pure. But then the awareness is, uh, you know, as, as the, the you. You recognize that it's awareness, the value of this awareness. Then one can learn from all these, the ways that, that one, uh, you know, how am I holding this convention, this, this kind of aversion, uh, to it, boredom with it, uh, weariness of it. What, what is that? You know, these are, these are other challenges to just be aware of, uh, of 
these mental states where, say, if I'm blaming the convention, monks, nuns, tradition, and all that, then I missed it. I'm not kind of, I've lost it again. Because that's not it, is it? It's not anybody's fault or the fault of the convention or the tradition. But maybe it doesn't inspire me anymore. Maybe I used it for, you know, inspired. It, it, uh, I saw it in, in very, in a, in a very positive way, in a great hopes, expectations, uh, in this convention. And, uh, and then when those, those things you can't sustain, they're unsustainable. Hopes, expectations, inspiration. And then there's, then you create a sense of loyalty. And dedication. So you, you, you get caught in loyalty. Can't let down the Sangha. Loyal to the Sangha is another idea. But, and that gets wearisome too, being loyal and having to, you know, feeling dutifully loyal to it. One feel it brings out cynicism. But these are all mental states that arise and cease. You know, where the constant, the constant, that which sustains itself is what, what I point to when I say the word awareness, mindfulness. Because the mental conditions, you know, rise and cease and change and, you know, they're, you can't sustain them in, in any way. You can't keep be, you can't keep and sustain inspired inspiration or, or, uh, disillusionment. If you really re- recognize, realize, the liberation through awareness. So then instead of being a, a kind of party member, card carrying Theravadan forest monk, you know, and, 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 uh, and kind of performing my duties out of loyalty and that is that, that kind of attitude you know, is, 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 is a kind of inner tyranny. You know, it's, it's, you're putting up with it, kind of stiff upper lip, getting through the system. But the, it's suffering, it's still dukkha. So this is where the, the, you know, this investigation of the Four Noble Truths. What, the attachment, what is it, what is, I'm suffering when I'm just, being dutifully loyal and and uh, committed a commitment out of maybe an inspiration in the beginning there are all kinds of you know obligations responsibilities can weigh you down you know monasticism can be full of kind of heaviness and being responsible having to be an impeccable example at all times to you all and then, I used to feel I was obligated to, this was favorite word of Ajahn Anando, impeccability. So then, remember, he used to use it a lot. And, and when somebody uses a word like that a lot, I, I start getting aversion to it. 
He said, we've got to be impeccable examples. Another monk, his favorite word was accountability. And every time he said it, I felt he was having a go at me. He didn't feel I was accountable. He's always insinuating I wasn't accountable. So whenever we'd have meetings, accountability is necessary. We must trust each other and be accountable. And then I, I'd get this impression he was implying I wasn't. <laughs> so these can be inspiring words, impeccable at first to I found inspiring, so uncountable, but, but then they get worn out too. And on the level of just trying to live up to these standards and principles is wearisome. You know, it's a tension and and uh, contraction, headaches, ailments. You get sick, and uh, you just stiff up your lip, put up with it. This is dukkha, isn't it? So, so this is. The, and so, what are we here for? What is the point of of this monastic form? What, how are we holding it? How, how do we, how to look at it? If we're suffering from it, then what, what is the cause of the suffering? And we blame it? Blame the convention? Blame the rules? Blame the tradition? You know, we're still then we're, then we're, we're going outward. We're trying to say, find faults with it. Say it isn't good enough or it doesn't work. <clears throat> or then, Go the other way. Oh, it's my fault. I wasn't meant to be this way. I'm not advanced enough, not enough for me. I've got too much greed, hatred, and delusion. Can't do it. Um, my karma doesn't allow for it. <laughs> Don't believe that either. You know, it's, uh, what, you know, Try recognize, admit, look, learn from this. However, whichever tendency you you tend to incline to, deliberately make it conscious. Listen to the complaining mind or to the blaming mind. It's your fault that I'm suffering. Now, when I listen and I think this is, you you are to blame for my suffering. And I, you know, I can. I can just kind of carry that around and act, but not make it fully conscious. I'm really blaming you. <clears throat> and, I, and then I say, oh, no, I'm not blaming you. Of course not. I know that I'm creating my own suffering. It's in the scriptures. Dhammapada, of course. <laughs> but I might still hold you to blame, you know. You know, because uh, I, you know, I can, I know the, the right things to say. But what am I actually feeling? What am I actually, you know, how does this emotion actually feel? What is it? It's your fault that I'm suffering. And so making that conscious, bringing that into consciousness, you are to blame for my suffering. And listening to it, that's like investigating and by making, by 
bringing it into consciousness in an intentional, deliberate way, you can actually see it and listen to it and and investigate that feeling of my suffering is due to you. It's like it's like this, and it, you you know you begin to to see what you're doing, the way of the attachment to this this feeling. So the more you attach to this feeling intentionally, then you you get it in perspective. It becomes very obvious, and so then letting go of it is 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 is, is then uh, you know recognizing insight, letting go of this, not being attached to this view, or this feeling, or this habit. It's not a dis- it's not suppressing it anymore, but it, until you fully own it, you know, into being conscious, recognize, then you can't, you're only operating from, you know, ideas and the shoulds and shouldn'ts. And, and that isn't liberated, you can't be liberated through, through just trying to become uh, a good monk or nun. You can become a good monk or nun that way. by trying, but to be liberated. So this is, you know, but even if your aim is to be only a good monk or a good nun, as a personal thing, it's still, it's still going to find the life, you know, it get, you know, it's a kind of joyless life and pointless life if it's, if it's just, uh, Trying to perpetuate a sense of yourself, whether you're a lay person or a monastic. Or I'm, it's my fault, I'm just too heedless and I can't do it, I'm not advanced enough and that kind of thing. Make that conscious. I'd listen, you know, I quite, I found this quite entertaining. It's like listening to the archers or some (laughs) coronation street. The melodramas that I can create about me, but listening not not in a to criticize or to to make judgments, but to recognize this is this is a creation. This you know this is not this is a Nietzsche. It is, it is what it is. A sense of myself and my inability, or uh, the blaming tendency. It's your fault. Or it's because monastic life, it's the problems with, and you don't really need conventions. Just be mindful. That's enough. And it's the true but not right, right but not true. <laughs> but right now, say, uh, monastic science, this is, you know, on the conventional level, this is what we are. 
As if I start thinking, oh, I think I'd be happier as a lay person, kind of live, you know, no longer bound by these these traditions. And then then I can see that, uh, you know, being aware of that. But right now, this is this is the way it is. Monastic robes, shaven head. And so rather than, than grasping this and following, you know, thinking I'd be happier if I disrobed, even though I might feel like that, I look at that feeling, you know, and, and the doubt and then how easy I can blame the, the monastic form. It's not, it's failed me. It's not good enough. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't give you the, the, the really intense emotional experiences you need through intimate relationships. So one monk, just before he disrobed, told me, he says, this woman has made me realize things that I've never experienced before. <laughs> It's so exciting. So this is, uh, you know, the, and this is obviously quite compelling. But what is it in the present? You know, this is the enlightenment is now awareness. When you're expecting some kind of intense intimacy and and uh, special relationship. And then you, you know, you're living as a monk or not, it can think, you know, this monasticism can seem pretty dreary. Because intensity, isn't it? That's, uh, that's rather exciting. Being intense and going into things deeply and feeling things intensely. It, you know, even it sounds attractive and exciting. Getting up in the morning, morning puja. Off key, no more does uh, bag of wet. <laughs> so this is where, you know, I encourage this, this, um, you know, recognizing this awareness, because then these things can be, you know, recognized in terms of what they really are in the present, rather than, than, you know, mesmerizing and, and, uh, engaging our attention and to pulling us into, you know, into becoming like that. So, you know, the value of a monastic form is that it, it holds you. You know, it would be harder to, to, you know, get perspective on those things if you didn't, if, you know, because of the commitment to the monastic tradition, the, <clears throat> the power of this tradition. I mean, at least it holds you and, 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 and you can't just run off every time, uh, you know, you, you get bored with this off into something else. It helps you to, to, you know, if you recognize, uh, how it's to help you to sustain your attention through these valleys of despair. The valley of morbidio inferiori, 
where we, you know, the disillusionment. So the world does offer more exciting opportunities, you know, in terms of possibilities for all kinds of exciting sensory experiences, relationships, opportunities. But is any of that really liberating, you know, as my experience with the world was that, you know, I pretty, I got what I wanted from it, but so what? At the end of the day, then I had to start looking for something else. It just seemed, I got, I mean, I was world weary at 30. By the time I was 30, I was pretty fed up with it. And it wasn't that I had bad worldly experiences. But I could see that I could, you know, I could, was aware that, that just by following all these kind of desires and that, that even, even if I fulfill them, it's still something inadequate and disappointing about it. Not leading to contentment. So anyway, this uh, opportunity to reflect uh, and uh, this is like sharing or <laughs> anything I say is, is, is an offering of consideration. You know, and and, and uh, encouragement. Because, you know, this is what I, what I can do with in terms of, uh, on the conventional realm that I'm living in. This is what I want to do. There's not dutifulness. So that's enough for this morning.